Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. doesn't bring you hope, singing those words. I don't know what does. I, uh, yesterday at 4.10, um, Bob Lewis sent us elders a text, and here's what his text read. In light of what we just sang, he's alive, death, where's your sting? He sends the text. He goes, men, my dad is no longer suffering and is now singing in Jesus' presence. I mean, like, how, how is that, like, not the hope of the gospel? That's the text that he sends. My, my dad passes away. Men, my dad is no longer suffering and is now singing in Jesus' presence. When we come here and gather on Sunday mornings, we get little, little glimpses of what we have the opportunity to do for eternity um, and sing in the presence of Jesus. We have, we have a relationship with him, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So we are uh, summer in Psalms. Uh, this whole month of July, we're just hanging out, hitting some different Psalms. We've hit Psalm chapter 1. Uh, Spencer brought us Psalm 56 last week. Today we'll be in Psalm 51, and then next week, if you want to read ahead and, and just spend time with the Lord, we'll be in Psalm 95. We talked about what Psalms does, okay? Psalms stops the narrative of the Old Testament, um, and what it does is it kind of just opens the curtain on what a relationship or, or how God interacts with believers. Um, the whole Old Testament is just the narrative of what God's doing, especially specifically in the life of Israel as a a country, and then what, what Psalms does is it's like the, the gathering of all the worship songs and prayers that they utilized generationally um, as a nation. As Israel gathered for worship, just like we are here this morning, these would have been the songs um, and the texts that they would have read um, in preparation for weekly worship. And so that's where we're, we're going to be going today. Today, uh, David wrote a lot of the songs, not all of them, but he did write this psalm for a very specific purpose. Um, he wrote it, um, it runs parallel with 2 Samuel um, chapter 12, actually a lot of 2 Samuel, those chapters. It, it runs parallel with David being confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, face to face, Nathan comes to him, and so we'll get into that as we go. But I just want to start off, we're going to take a little um, tour back in history. I just want to read uh, something for you. So on May 28, 1889, a low pressure area formed over Nebraska and Kansas. By, this by the time this weather pattern reached western Pennsylvania two days later, it had developed into what would be termed the heaviest rainfall event that has ever been recorded in that part of the United States. The U.S. Army Signal Corps estimated that 6 to 10 inches of rain fell in 24 hours over this region. During the night, the small creeks became roaring torrents, ripping out trees and debris. Telegraph lines were downed and rail lines were washed away. Before daybreak, the Connemaw River was about to overwhelm its banks. On the morning of May 31st, in a farmhouse on the hill just above the South Fork Dam, Elias Unger, president of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, awoke to the sight of Lake Connemaw swollen after a night-long heavy rain. Unger ran outside in the still pouring rain to assess the situation and saw that the water was nearly cresting the dam. He quickly assembled a group of men to save the face of the dam by trying to unclog the spillway. It had been blocked by broken fish traps and debris caused by the swollen water line. Other men tried digging a ditch at the other end of the dam on the western ab abutment, which was lower than the dam crest. 
The idea was to let water out of the lake to try to prevent overtopping the crest, but it was all without success. Between 2.50 and 2.55 p.m., the South Fork Dam breached, releasing 14.5 million cubic meters of water with a flow rate that temporarily equaled the average flow rate of the Mississippi River. 14 miles downstream of the breach dam sat the town of Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Some 57 minutes after the South Fork Dam collapsed, the flood hit Johnstown. The residents were caught by surprise as the water of wall and debris bore down, traveling at 40 miles per hour and reaching a height of 60 feet. Some people, realizing the danger, tried to escape by running towards the high ground, but most people were hit by the surging floodwater. Many people were crushed by pieces of debris, and others became caught in the barbed wire from the factory upstream and drowned. Those who reached attics or managed to stay afloat on pieces of floating debris um, waited hours for help to arrive. At Johnstown, the stone bridge which was a substantial arched structure, carried the Pennsylvania Railroad across the Connemaw River. The debris carried by the flood formed a temporary dam at the bridge, resulting in the flood surge rolling upstream along the Stony Creek River. Eventually, gravity caused the surge to return to the dam, causing a second wave to hit the city, but from a different direction. Some people who had been washed downstream became trapped in the inferno as the debris piled up against the stone bridge caught fire. At least 80 people would die here. The fire at the stone bridge burned for three days. After floodwaters receded, the pile of debris at the bridge was seen to cover 30 acres and reach 70 feet in height. It took workers three months to remove the mass of debris, the delaying owing to the huge quantity of steel barbed wire. A total of 2,200 people would die. 99 entire families died in the flood, including 396 children. 124 women and 198 men were widowed. 98 children were orphaned. One-third of the dead, 777 people, were never identified. Their remains were buried in the plot of the unknown in the Grandview Cemetery in Westmont. Amazing photos. Uh, this was one of the biggest natural disasters um, in the United States up to this time, um, and they didn't have the technology to let people know what was happening. A lot of destruction, a lot of death. Amazing photos. I, uh, it just uh, blows my mind just to think the surprise factor of something like this, that it came and out of nowhere and people, so many people were killed. Come back to that in just a second. Today we're going just to examine and look at the word repentance. Uh, we're going to cover three facts about repentance between our two passages. And uh, the first thing that we're just going to talk about is repentance is the only response to sin. So we can't get to repentance until we talk about sin. Uh, because <laughs> repentance is a result of turning away from sin in our lives. Um, so what is sin? Sin is anything we put on the throne of our hearts above God. It's a simple, I love that definition. Sin is anything that we put on the thrones of our heart above God. So there's, there's a lot there. Um, you can start unpacking that as we talk about that today. Um, but as Genesis 3 happens, which we talked about earlier in the month, like Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, original sin kind of just paved the way for every one of us to be born with this desire to do things that don't please God. It just flows through our veins like a mighty river. We're born with this desire to do things that don't please God. So we just saw the amazing destruction of what a flood can do um, and the power of a, a, a body of water gaining speed without any obstacle. We just saw what that looked like. But I just want you to think in light of sin, okay, and, and this caused a lot of damage, but sin causes every day on the face of this earth more damage than 100 of those floods could put together. 
Sin is a powerful, powerful thing of destruction that takes more lives on a daily basis than this flood will ever could. But sin is why we need repentance. Uh, sin's not really cool to talk about. Like, especially when you're preparing a message, like Satan really plays with your mind. Like you're sitting there and you're like, okay, I gotta talk about sin. And Satan just starts like, you really gonna do that? Like half the people are gonna tune out before you even get going. And you have like these mental battles as you prepare. Just, sin's just not something that, that we talk about. Um, and, and it's one of those things that like we even see it. We, we know that we struggle with it, but then we see it in other people's lives as well. Like we can see it growing and growing in intensity. But for some reason, out of fear, out of our own insecurities, we, we don't often call it out. And, and that can often happen. And so um, just to like break, the, you know, break the, the barrier of that, I just want you to turn to the person next to you and just say, you're a sinner. Just, just let it out, okay? You're a sinner. And then I want, <laughs> don't leave anybody out of this room, okay? Whatever you do. Nobody's up here. Then I want the other person that you said to turn back and say, so are you. All right, so are you. Okay? Like, sin is something that we, we should talk about. Um, and we're going to talk about today because guess what? Like we just talked about, every one of us has the ability to turn to the person next to us and say, you're, you're a sinner. And, and they can have every right to look back and say, so are you. Okay, so we, we, we have this ability because we have that common struggle to talk about sin. And so today we're going to end up, we start with a, a man, okay? Nathan was a prophet of God. And the, this, this whole thing wouldn't have happened. Psalm 51, the rest of David's life living with God, wouldn't have happened if Nathan wasn't willing to be obedient to God and call out sin for what it was. How many of you love calling people out for sinful things in their lives? Like, just raise your hand. Yeah, nobody loves that, okay? It's not like, let me put that on the calendar. Every Friday, I'm going to call one of my friends out about sin in their life. Like, we just don't do that. Um, but our passage today starts with an amazing fact that Nathan was willing to do that. And you know what? God will sometimes use you, utilize you to reveal the need for repentance in someone's life. So this is just a side note. It hasn't anything to do with our personal talk about repentance today, but that, that's what the opportunities are. So sin, repentance is a response. It's the only response to sin. So I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to go to verses 9 and 10. And we're just going to take a look at what happens here, what is going on in David's life as we enter into our passage this morning. You know, uh, like it's so easy when we look at, read stories about David and, and the big sins in the Bible to like get really judgmental really fast. But like David didn't get to this point just by like, it wasn't like he just was like walking with the Lord and then one day he wakes up, like wakes up, sees a woman and goes, I should have like an affair with her and then kill her husband. Like that's not how it happens, okay? Um, there's, there's, there's steps that come into play when it comes to sin and we need to be aware of it in our lives. Um, especially if we're going to understand what repentance is. So let's go to verse uh, 9 and 10 in 2 Samuel 12. And uh, Nathan's words to David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This is kind of like the, the climactic moment of David being confronted with his sin. And, and Nathan gets right in his face, doesn't mince words, and he goes, listen, like, you have sinned before God, and God will judge sin. And you will have consequences for your sin. Um, and this is like the turning point for David, where he's like, 
he understands, because someone speaks truth to him, the power that sin has taken hold in his life. So Nathan speaks this amazing truth. So how did David, a, a man who got called, a, he, he's the only one in Scripture who gets labeled a man after God's own heart. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I, I know a lot of us have heard that, but it's like it just, you can't dismiss that fact in light of everything here. And, and it's still, he's still labeled that despite some of his sin struggles. Man, that's the grace of God. And let's take a look at what that is. So there's, there's some steps that happen, though, in David's life where he got to this point. Again, just, just as we examine sin in our own hearts this morning, here's the five stages that, that sin can take hold. First of all is, number one, desensitization. Desensitization. So 2 Samuel chapter 5, okay? This is only seven chapters earlier. David's anointed king comes to power, okay? And in Deuteronomy 17, it lays out the law for, for Hebrew kings. And one of the things that it lays out, okay, for the kings, and it says, you shall not take multiple wives. Like, it's clear as day. Deuteronomy 17 says, Hebrew kings, one of the rules that we're going to put forth is that they shall not take multiple wives. Well, culturally, it was very common for there to be multiple wives during this time. So David, fast forward, rewind seven chapters before, he comes to power, and he totally ignores, he becomes desensitized to the sin that is around him and the rules that God has set forth for him in his life. Sin has an interesting way of doing this. Um, it, it really does. Like, it's sneaky. It just, like, kind of sneaks in there. And then it, like, you just kind of get used to it. And then you just kind of, like, all right. Like, that's just going to be a part of what's going on around us. Um, that's, that's just what, you know, hey, Netflix puts it on. I'll watch it. You know, it's there. It's, and we just become, like, desensitized to what culture um, is putting forth when it comes to the area of sin. Uh, the South Fork Dam, the picture, the first picture we showed, um, for years, like 50 years before, it was like everyone was talking about, like, if this thing ever collapsed, it would be the most, like, there would be death and destruction everywhere. Um, and so people that, like, lived all the way down the river would always talk about, like, well, what are they doing to fix it? And so they would bring in, the state brought in engineers at different times along the way um, to check on it. But eventually, the years leading up to the actual dam breaking, um, people had kind of just gotten used to, like, the fact that, you know, hey, It'll be all right. Like, there's never going to rain that hard where that thing breaks. Um, and that's kind of what sin does is, like, we're like, eh, it's never going to hurt me. And we become desensitized to the power and destruction of what sin can do. So the second step, what happens um, when it comes to sin is the next one is um, you become fixated on it. Um, and what happens is, <laughs> so David goes out on the roof, okay? He sees, um, yeah, I, I skipped one. Go back to the first one. Step one, all right? So desensitization, go to the next one here. Relaxation, okay? Um, P.T. Barnum said this quote. He said, comfort is the enemy of progress, okay? And it's so true. So David, when this is, being, when this is happening in his life, he's in his 50s, okay? Um, David has been a warrior and had won many battles. Who's the big giant that he killed? Goliath, okay? Um, he has like a trophy case of battle victories. Um, and he's reached this point in life where now he's like, kind of on top of the world and has other people that do everything for him. Comfort has a way of, of, of getting us close to, to really drawing us into sin. Um, you know, whatever age you're in, in this room, sometimes the older you get and the more comfortable you get, like, you know, the whole retirement thing, which is a very Western um, idea, um, that's, when, that's when sin just creeps in. Like, when you get comfortable, like, it becomes really hard sometimes to follow Christ the way that you should. 
Now, does that mean like go sell your stuff and live under a bridge? No, okay? Um, but what it means is you need to be purposeful and intentional and be careful that comfort, okay, and relaxation doesn't allow. Because this is where David found himself as he enters into this time of temptation. Um, next, we see step three of what sin does is fixation. So 2 Samuel chapter 11 shows the actual time when David goes out on the roof. Um, he should be at battle. He should be doing something else. He knew, like, he didn't walk out there and be like, um, man, I wonder, like, he knew that women bathed on their roofs at certain times, and he knew where to go to look at it. So he goes out, sees Bathsheba. The literal um, Hebrew translation, <laughs> it's kind of funny. The, the literal Hebrew translation of this is uh, beautiful of appearance, very beautiful of appearance, very modern translation. She was really, really hot. Okay. Like he went out, Caesar. Okay. And becomes fixated on this woman. You see what happens when we fixate on sin. And this is where David got. Okay. When we fixate on sin, uh, we forget about God completely. Sin blocks our view. So many times we think we can uh, do both. Like I can, I can focus on sin and then give God my time. Like I can, I can the rest of the week be like so entrenched into my sin and fixated on it. Um, but when I get in here on Sunday morning, I'm just kind of kind of like confess and lift my hands up and listen to the message and feel good about it for like a couple hours before I go out into the rest of the week. And it doesn't really work like that. See, when we fixate on sin, we forget about God. When we fixate on sin, we forget about God. And this is the next step where David was. Remember, he didn't get, he didn't get there just by waking up one morning. There were steps and stages. And we all have this in our lives. There's identify where you are at with your sin. The next thing is rationalization. Um, we are good at this. <laughs> so real quick, turn to 2 Samuel 11. Just go back a page, and we're going to look at verse 3. You know that promise in Scripture that Jesus doesn't tempt us? God doesn't tempt us, but he always gives us a way of escape. This is that moment right here. This is the moment when David has in a way of, of escape. But he begins to rationalize. So look at verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said to the, is it not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. In that moment is his moment of escape. Someone comes to him and says, like, go find out who this chick is. He comes back in and goes, she's married. Okay, that is someone's wife. And there is that moment where he decides, go get her. Go get her. Every sin will give us that moment where we have to make that decision. God gives us a way of escape, and we have that decision, that breaking point where we say, go get it. It doesn't have to be sexual sin. It can be any sin. And that's where we see David fixated. He's rationalizing now, and he goes, all right, you know what? Um, go get her anyways. And we do this so well, don't we? Like, with all errors of sin, I'm the first, like, rationalizing sin is just natural to us. You know, you lose your temper, um, but our excuse is we rationalize it by saying, yeah, but the other person just wouldn't listen. You know, in the workplace, at home, you know, my kid just wouldn't listen to me. Uh, you leave work early every Friday. You cut out a couple hours early. But you know what I've done for this company, the amount of extra work I've put in? Um, we kind of just rationalize what we do. Um, you look at porn on your computer, but you justify it by saying my wife or husband isn't fulfilling my needs. Got really quiet there. Um, you do exactly what your parents tell you not to do, teenagers. Um, but what's, your, what's our rationalization for that one every time? It hasn't changed in generations. 
yeah, but my parents are so much more strict than the other parents at school. You know, like we use, that's like our favorite go-to. But you don't understand, my parents are just more, they have more rules than the other parents. We rationalize our disobedience by just making up excuses. Now, I know um, none of you guys do that in this room, but we all do that, okay? And then the last step, and this is where like the culmination of sin comes together, is degeneration, okay? 2 Samuel eleven fourteen. you're in that chapter, so just look at what, unfolds here. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah, the husband, in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. David knew what he was doing. Like this is the ultimate. Here's a, here's a man, the, the, the acclaimed king who did amazing things for God and this is where sin has got him. It will always degenerate a person. Then he makes up a bunch of lies and we go through, you guys know the rest of the story. It's, it's heartbreaking. Um, Kent Hughes in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, says this, suffice to say at this time in David's life, Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. David tried to get Uriah drunk so that he would have sex with Bathsheba so that it would look like the baby that was coming was his. Um, and you get to this point where you say, man, Uriah was a better man drunk he wouldn't do it because of the honor that he had promised to his men because it was a time of war. Back then, they would not have sex during that time because they wanted to be focused on the battle. He was a more man of honor, drunk, than David was sober. Wow. There's no, uh, my sons right now like to play hide and seek around the house. They still don't get the whole like hiding, like who does what. So it's not really that fun right now. But like so many times we think that hide and seek, we can play hide and seek with God with our sins. Like that we can just like kind of put it over here and no one will ever find out. Sin always, always, always will cause degeneration. So those are just, like these are important to understand. Uh, those steps of where we're at. Josh, can you fly back there? Just do one, two, three, four, five real quick. Because I just want to, these are so important. If you're writing them down, it'll, sin desensitizes us. Like we just get used to what's going around us. Like you, maybe you've seen this in your own life where like things that like when you first got saved bothered you. Like you look, you're like, whoa. Like, that doesn't bother me anymore. Maybe sin has a, a, a throne of your heart right now. Number two, relaxation. Like, maybe you've just got, like, you're so into the comfort right now that you're relaxed, and when you're relaxed, sin takes hold so quick. Number three, fixation. Maybe there's a certain sin right now that you are battling. Like, it is, like, at the core of who you are right now. Um, but that's when you got to, this is all leading the way, paving the way to repentance. Step four, rationalization. If you're doing this, identify this in your life because you cannot rationalize sin. And then the fifth, degeneration. I mean, you've probably, we could all sit around and share how sin has affected our lives, like in, in real ways. We could be honest with one another and be like, here, let me, let me just tell you like some of the, the ramifications of sin. And those of you who are older in the room, like a lot of times we like to hide in here. Like if you ever just like grab a couple of teenagers, take them out and make them pay, but like take them out and say, yo, like, I'm not getting up in your face. I don't even know you. But let me just tell you a little bit about what I've done in my life. When I, whenever I rejected God, here's, here's some of the ramifications of sin in my life. You could have a, there's parents sitting here that would be like, that would be awesome if you could tell my kid that. Like, that's the beauty of community as we sit around as sinners, saved by grace, but still willing to say, you know what? When I made a choice to not please God, here's what God's grace did in my life. I dare you to do it. Like, anybody older in this room, okay? And when you're older, when they're teenagers, that means like, 25, okay? Um, because, you know, how that works. So, like, do it. Like, go out and be willing to share what the marks of sin in your life. So, 
this is all setting the pave, paving the way for repentance. So if you're sitting here this morning struggling um, or in any of these cha- uh, stages of sin, um, you need repentance. Like, you can't leave here today without spending time just giving it to the Lord, repenting, and, we, and we'll, we'll do that later. This should be one of the most uh, freeing things. Repentance is not like this, like, weird, like, you get down in a dark closet of your basement and just, like, lay on the floor and scream. Like, that's not, I, we, like, our culture does such a good job at, like, confusing what confession and repentance is. Repentance is literally just a crying out to God, and we're going to talk about what that looks like um, in just a second, but man, take the opportunity to repent. But what does it look like? And this is where we're going to get to Psalm 51. Um, a year is going to go by. This whole storyline that we just read in 2 Samuel, a year, 365 days of David walking through this process of trying to, of, of actually committing the sin and then trying to cover it up. And then Nathan confronts David. And in Psalm 51, we see David's response, which is a guide for us when it comes to repentance. You see, re- re- repentance, okay, is followed by action. It has to be followed by action. And David is going to give us four actions of a repentant person, indicators. And this is good for us, and it's also good for, um, as, you're, as you maybe have someone in your life who claims to, to be a Christ follower, and you know it's always that awkward, like, you say you're a Christian, but, like, I just ain't seeing it, you know? And, and you don't want to, like, just go right at that. Like, this whole passage helps us, first of all, look inside, and then also as we do life with people to say, here's some key indicators of someone who's living and repent. So number one, uh, look at verses one and two. Let's turn to Psalm 51. Everybody flip over there. We're going to need you to be there as we walk through this. Psalm 51, and we'll just start right in verses one and two. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. A truly repentant person gets to the point where they realize they need God. Like there's no, other, there's no other place to turn. God is their ultimate destination and he's the one that can fulfill everything they need. James McDonald says it like this, repentance is the process of seeing what God sees. Love that. Repentance is the process of seeing what God sees. What, what word does he use twice in verse one? It's not, what, what word does he use twice in mercy? He realizes his need for God draws him to say, God, I need mercy. This is the only place I can get it. It's it's your mercy that I need poured out on my life right now. And only you can wash me. And then he uses three different words there. He says, blot out my transgressions, wash me, and cleanse me. I mean, this is like a person who's truly repentant realizes that God is the only one that can thoroughly wash them clean of their sin. The only place they can go. So many times uh, when we're not serious about this, we, we kind of get stuck here in this phase and we, do, we try to supplement other things. So instead of just like simply crying out to God and asking for mercy and like begging him for mercy, what we do is we try to set up like, you know what I'll do is I'll just kind of like set up an accountability group. You know, like if I just tell one other person, then it kind of takes care of it. Um, maybe if I get the pastor involved, you know, like if I just tell the pastor, then that kind of is like, right, like that's... I'm heading the right direction, right? Uh, maybe if I just, like, you know, there's all these things that we do, and those are not bad things, but it can't start there. Those are all supplementary to getting on our faces and saying, God, I need you, and your mercy is the only thing that is going to wash me clean and thoroughly. It can't be all these other things that we tried to put, like, Band-Aids on wounds. It starts with God. 
Number two, a truly repentant person takes responsibility for their sin. Um, look in verse three, and then we're look verse three to six. Look at all the personal pronouns that go on here. Um, I had to look that up. My English teacher had been so proud in high school. I didn't even know what a pronoun was, but I looked it up. Look at all the personal pronouns in verses three to six that go on. I'm gonna pause, okay? Just to see who's looking up. I'm gonna pause at the personal pronouns and we say them out loud together through these verses because it is powerful, okay? A repentant person takes responsibility for, uh, oh, I messed up already. For, no my, oh, sorry. I, try, I even practiced this. For, no transgressions and Sin is ever before against you. You only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Verse five, behold, was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did mother conceive. Behold, you delight in the truth of the inward being and you teach wisdom in the secret heart. Man, David is taking personal responsibility by inserting his name before God and saying, listen, God, I have sinned. Me, I, I have sinned. He's not making excuses. Like he, he talks about universal like sin here. Okay, that there's some theology going on here where we all are born into sin. But then he's taking personal responsibility, not making excuses. He doesn't go in there and say, um, God, I, I messed up because of the way I was raised. So please forgive me. Um, God, I'm, I'm making this um, mistake right now, and I made this mistake because you just don't understand um, my marriage right now, and my kids are driving me nuts, and all these things. Like, he doesn't do that. He goes right through there and just says, you know what, God? Like, right here, it's just you and me talking, and he's finding freedom in confessing. This is the beautiful thing. Is, is You ever been there, like, when you just confess your sins to God, it's the most freeing thing in the world? Especially if you're, like, being racked with guilt. Uh, confession of sins is often the catalyst to restoring conversation with God. I work with teenagers. A lot of the things that I hear most frequently is God feels distant to me. Now, I just love that they tell me that because they're teenagers and they will share, but adults feel the same way, don't we? Sometimes God just feels distant. I often wonder how many times, like, if we, where we're lacking confession of sin because confession of sin is often the catalyst that brings back conversation with God. Um, I'll never forget, fifth grade was the first time I ever felt this, like, intense guilt. Um, we, I grew up as a faculty kid in a Christian school. I was always in the building, spent my whole life in this building. My dad was a teacher. My mom was a teacher. Always there. We had a cafeteria. There was an ice cream machine. The right drawer, I could lift it, slip my hand in there, and grab chip witches all day long, okay? And um, I would do that. And one day, like, for whatever reason, the Spirit of God convicted me of stealing chip witches, and I'll never forget, like, my dad walked in on me, okay, and uh, I had just actually finished. I had already taken it, and I was finishing, and he said, did you, did you steal ice cream? I said, no, I didn't steal ice cream. Okay, okay. That night, I laid there in bed, and I just, like, the spirit just racked me. I mean, I was like, I felt like I was going to vomit. I was sick. It was, it was a beautiful thing that God was doing me to break me of this, of this stealing of that I was doing, and... I'll never forget that, that moment when I, I came to my dad crying, and I'm like, Dad, I took the ice cream, and actually I've taken a lot of ice cream over the years. I didn't care that I was going to get in trouble or the repercussions of that moment. I was just so, so, so freed by the fact that I had told my dad. He hugged me and cried, and he goes, I knew you took the ice cream. I'm like, how would you know? He goes, because you had a chip witch on your cheek. 
while you're talking to me. Like literally chocolate on my face. But it was this beautiful moment of restoration where my dad hugged me, put his arms around me, and he forgave me. He goes, you know, we're going to go make this right. Yes, I didn't care because I now had, I could talk to my dad. I had been avoiding my dad. I had been just like putting it off to the side. And here in this moment, there's this restoration that comes from me confessing my sin. And that was the first time God really showed me what the, the power of confessing sin is. It is a beautiful thing that God gives us, not to cover up, but to confess what God was doing. And that happened in that moment. David is finding comfort in confession. Number three, a truly repentant person desires a restored relationship with God. Um, question, is the book of Psalms pre-cross or post-cross? Pre-cross, okay? Um, pre-cross. So when you read this, okay, um, Psalm, the book of Psalms being pre-cross, and you look at the language of David, um, you see a man who, who, even though he's confessing his sin, he still has a little bit of doubt in his heart. He has like a despair that post-cross is this beautiful thing that we don't experience. But let me just show you one example of this, okay? Verse 7. So go to verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And then look at verse 11, that first line. It says, cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. I mean, this is David just crying out to God. And let me just explain what that purge with hyssop is, okay? Back in this time, there was lepers, okay? The leper colonies, if you were, um, got the disease of leprosy, you were sent out to a colony, most cases, people died. Sometimes, miracles happen, things happen, it wasn't as bad, and people were allowed to, they were healed, and they would come back into society. For that to happen, they would have to come before the priest, and it was like getting your, uh, like, the actual, like, checkup done at the doctor, your annual physical. They went through a series of things to see, is this person really able to enter back into um, civilization with the other Israelites? And so, what would happen is the person would come forward and the priest would do his thing. And then if he was able to go back to society, he would take a hyssop and it was a visual picture and he would anoint the person and say, you are clean, go back. Can you imagine like the freedom and power of that? In that moment when you've, you've, you thought you were going to die, you had this disease that most people die from and all of a sudden you're, you're, you're deemed to go back. You're able to go back into society. That's what David is using that picture right here. He's saying, God, work in me. Like, purge me with hyssop so that I may be whiter than snow. Like, take the sin away from me so that I can go back into society as a changed, clean, normal person covered in your blood. It's, it's just powerful words that he uses here. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You see this despair and desperation that happens in David's voice? Like, he's literally saying, God, don't leave me. Please don't leave me. David is like a leper hoping he's good enough to get back to God. That's pre-cross, okay? June 15th, 1906, page 2 of the Jamestown Tribune read this simple headline. Death at 1045 last Friday night called from this world one of the heroes of the Johnstown flood. In the person of John C. Hess, a prominent railroad engineer of the 2nd Street, Connemaw. At the time of the flood, he was stationed with his locomotive about a mile east of the Day Express, which stood at Connemaw, filled with passengers. It had been whispered that the dam at South Fork might break, and a number of passengers on Day Express left the coaches and climbed to the surrounding hills. The through, <clears throat> the through passengers 
so the ones that were going to get ready to go on to the next town, however, remained in the vestibule passenger cars. Suddenly was heard the shrill blast of a locomotive whistle, the signal that something serious had occurred, and the conductor and brakeman of the express quietly announced to the passengers, please step up on the hillsides as quickly as possible. Engineer Hess, upon the first warning of the death-dealing wave, tied down the whistle of his locomotive, threw open the throttle of the big machine, and dashed down towards East Kanama. The frantic scream of the whistle brought the people to their doors. They knew its meaning and made a rush for the hills. On reaching Kanama, having accomplished his task of spreading warning ahead of the waters, the brave engineer jumped from his engine and by a narrow margin escaped the rush of the flood. The next instant, he saw his machine swept from the tracks and buried among the debris. It's a really amazing story of someone who was willing to risk their life to get the voice. It, it's, uh, it's said that John Hess saved over 50 people who after they survived the flood said they never would have come to the door of their house um, and left if it wasn't for his train whistle coming through town. And they knew. People just knew. Remember how he said it was like kind of like this thing could always break. The destruction could happen. They knew and they ran for the hills. You know, the, the destruction and disaster of sin unfortunately affects every person. And repentance, okay, like Christ is that locomotive train who came through and by the blood of the cross, and by him dying on the cross, okay, gave us this amazing, amazing, amazing gift of repentance. He was like the only one that could stop and warn us. He was the, he's the savior of the world. He comes through and says, listen, destruction and sin will come. It's coming down. And your escape route is through me. It's through my blood, through the cross. It takes all but three chapters in the New Testament for this guy named John the Baptist to come on the scene you know what his favorite word was? Repentance. He cried it from the hilltops, walked around saying, repent, for there's someone coming after me who I'm not even worthy to wash his feet, but he is going to call you to repentance. You see it in early in chapter of Matthew, early in the New Testament, you see this word repentance, turn to Jesus. Jesus uses the word repent a lot. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Like, repentance was that gift that only came through Christ, and it's, repentance literally means a change of direction. It's like, hey, you're going this way, go this way now. With all the death and destruction of sin, we talked about that we see in the world every day and Christ is the only the only way of escape that's our only high ground it's the only place we can go and that's what restored relationship with Christ looks like and if you're sitting here today you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ today like repentance is giving your life over to Christ saying I'm turning to you I'm giving you my life but that's only the beginning we'll talk about that in a second I think this is one of the struggles we have as Christians is we, we, we say a prayer of repentance. So we, we like kind of start heading this direction, but then we quickly like kind of get discombobulated of which direction we're really supposed to be walking. It happens so often. Verses 13 and 19 gives us our final one. Repentance will reveal itself in the life of a person. I mean, in these last verses, we already read them, but David is like a new man. Like he's just a totally different person. Like his language like, look at uh, specifically the most powerful example of this in these verses is, I believe, verse 13. Look at verse 13. 
He goes, so the transgressor now says this, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David has just gone from saying like, God, I'm a sinner, I need you, to now he's like, let me go like tell others so that they don't sin anymore. Like his language changes, his passions change. He has a desire for worship again. He wants to be used by God in amazing ways. Repentance is ultimately not about a person's story, it's about God's story. And that's so important to remember. Like, repentance is not about your story. It's about God's story. Um, and so that it gives, like, your life, as you repent, don't, don't get caught up in, like, whatever sin it is. David never mentions his sin with Bathsheba in this. You notice that? He doesn't let his sin define him. He lets the Savior define him. He does not let sin define him. He doesn't walk around going, God, even though I'm an adultering murderer now, like, please give me a chance to do something else. He goes, no, God, like, I want to be restored to your presence because I'm a sinner and I want to go live for you and show others what it looks like to live a life of worship. It's powerful. So here's what I want to close our time with. Um, I, uh, like, what does this look like practically today? Okay, so repentance is a big topic. But I just want to like narrow it down to what does repentance look like today? And the illustration, the only illustration I could think of is um, an illustration that God's been doing in my life, Couch to 5K. Any of you ever use this app? Okay, it's on your phone, Couch to 5K. Um, one area of my life that God is constantly working on me with is my area of discipline in what I eat and then just my laziness when it comes to exercise. I have to give it to the Lord often. I have to repent um, because of my laziness, and it's an area that I work. So when I was down on vacation in Ocean City, I was, like, just fed up, and um, I'm, like, now I'm just sitting around more than I normally do, and I was just, like, ugh. So I downloaded Couch to 5K running app, and uh, I started to decide, like, I'm going to do this program, and uh, let me just tell you, it's been one of the most humbling things for me. Seriously, it has been so humbling. If you ever, like, do these things, you download it, and you start off. The first week, first two weeks are, like, the most humbling things. I, uh, I played college soccer in Florida and had to run, like, three miles in 20 minutes. That was, like, nine years ago, okay? Um, now I turn on this app, and they're like, walk for five minutes and stretch. And you're like, okay. Um, and then it goes, now walk for one minute. And then it goes, now run, or no, <laughs> it makes you walk for a minute and a half and run for a minute so you don't die, okay? And so that's, that's my workout. And at first, I'm having this mental battle, like, I'm too good for this. Like, this is ridiculous. It is very, very humbling. Like, then it, the GPS knows when you're running up hills and the voice, it's always a British lady. I hate that. She goes, you can do it. Like, you can do it. And it's so, it's, it really is humbling to do this. So like, God has used this. But you know what? what's happened is, is it's gotten easier and easier. And some of us, when it comes to this area of repentance, okay, we need to get off the couch and just start by a small, like, just start small. Like, tomorrow, like, get on your face before God, okay? We're called to a daily life of repentance. Take up your cross and follow me. Is a call for Christians to daily give themselves to Christ and say, God, today I need your mercy. Like, I, am, I don't want to fall. I don't want to have sin in my life. I give this to you. And it's amazing as you incrementally slowly build up the ability to just cry out to God how it becomes a habit. At the end of your runs on this app, um, it always ends with this. Um, Keep going, you're worth it. It's kind of cheesy at first, but now I kind of like it. I'm like, thanks. You know, but you know what, like, you know what, like, Christ did for me when it comes to repentance? He says, you're worth it. You're so worth it that I'm sending my, my son, my perfect spotless son, to die on a cross for you, and you are worth it. Like, I don't care where you are. I don't care what sin you've committed in the past. I don't care what sin you're covering right now. My blood will cover a repentant heart. It's one of the most amazing truths in Scripture is that God covers the repentant heart. 
I'm going to end with, if you have, like, if you get scared easily, I'm going to end with this verse, because it's a scary verse. Um, Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That, that's a scary verse. If you know the truth and you choose to just not do anything with it, judgment remains. And the fire that will consume the adversaries is poured out. Um, many will come to Jesus on the last day and say, Father, I did all these things in your name. And you know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to look at them and say, who are you? I don't know you. You, you did what? You weren't truly repentant. You know, just like Brian's relying on his ability to run nine years ago, like, you haven't done anything for me since because you haven't lived a life of repentance. Man, there's this beautiful thing of living as a Christian, a daily life of repentance, not in fear that you're losing your salvation or like, God, save me again. No, we are secure in Christ, but we now have this ability to live a life that is fully in repentance before God, crying out for his mercy on a daily basis. To end, I just want to play a song real quick. We're going to listen to it, and then we'll close. Um, it's uh, Shane and Shane sing just Psalm 51. I just want you to give you ability, because we can't leave here like, without just giving you an opportunity, me an opportunity just to talk to God. If you open a Psalm 51, this song will be hitting a lot of the words that we have. And I'm just going to close this in prayer. I'll be up front after if you want to talk um, about anything that was talked about today. And then we just invite you to stay a second hour. But just spend some time in this passage. Um, and then like, hopefully in the next couple minutes as you read it, Take it with you. This is a guide to repentance. Start tomorrow. Get off the couch and and start living a life of repentance. Let's play this. me from iniquity.
God, I pray that this morning no one would leave here, God, with unrepentant sin. God, I also that you would. We beg you and ask you to create in us a clean heart, God. Reveal to us where we're struggling and whatever stage of sin we're at, God. Sin is displeasing to you and we can't have a right relationship with you, God. So I pray this morning um, that we would be willing to repent of areas of our lives that we need to repent, God. Every one of us has areas that we're holding back, that we're not revealing, God. So I pray that you would do amazing work through your spirit. Um, if it's not right now, this week, God, would we not be able to rest until you reveal to us where we need to repent, God. We thank you for the gift of repentance. It's an amazing gift because of the cross that we have to restore a relationship with you because of what you've done for us, God. Go with us now. Thank you for the opportunity to worship today in your name. Amen.